God's loss of life, God's loss of son. And here, these disciples on the road to Emmaus have just suffered loss, and what are they given? Communion. Noun does a beautiful job of describing the scene. The disciples are walking along, trying to hold on to their memories of Jesus, but like with all loss, the initial pain makes those memories rather blurry and difficult to grasp. They are devastated, they're broken, they're disillusioned. It was just a few short years before that they had met this peasant from Galilee called Jesus, who had radically changed their lives. He had revealed to them a greater reality than the one they knew. He gave them hope in a hopeless world. He brought joy and peace into their daily experience. He spoke love and grace and revealed that that is what real power is. But now he was dead. Killed by hate and violence. They had lost him. They were walking home without really having a home anymore. I hear that sentiment a lot from people who lose, especially parents. Like, I don't have a home anymore, even though they have a home. They were returning now to what is a dark memory and to the seeming endless abyss of loss. You know, when you're in the middle of that pain of loss, it can seem like it's never, you're never going to get out of it. And I love the way Eugene Peterson captures it in the message. He asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? They just stood there long-faced like they had lost their best friend. I love how Eugene Peterson captures this scene. Loss sadly, may be the most accurate word for describing human experience. We're born, and we lose the safety of the womb. So it starts with losing. We go to school, lose the security of our family. We get our first job and lose the freedom of our youth. We grow old and lose our good looks. Well, I didn't get that. Thanks, huh? <laughs> A double there. Awesome. Yeah. Although it didn't take me to reach this old to lose my good looks. I lost those a long time ago. We lose our health. We lose our careers. We lose our physical independence. You know, I know my good friend, Rich, one of the biggest struggles beyond the obvious of having cancer is Rich is someone who has always identified as being a very healthy man, someone who has biked across country, someone who has stamina, someone who has strength. And one of the biggest things I know that just gets to him so much is his loss of stamina when chemo's knocking him down and he's just tired and exhausted, it, it's really a hard loss. And if these unavoidable losses aren't enough of looks, health, career, along the way we lose intimacy through separations, we lose safety through violence, we lose innocence through abuse, we lose friends through betrayal, we lose love through abandonment, and we lose loved ones through disease, accidents, natural disasters. Truly, losses, both big and small, are part of our everyday existence. Here's the problem. As losses mount up, they can lead to the loss of our dreams and our hopes. Let's face it, we all had dreams of the way our life would be, didn't we? We're going to be the perfect person, the perfect parent. We're going to have the perfect marriage. We're going to have the best job. We're to be the best person, we were going to change the world. But somehow we lose those dreams and all the losses 
we get along the way. Worries creep in, anxieties, pain of life in a world of loss can leave us often like these disciples, homeless. Clinging to few possessions we've collected along the way. And we trade in true intimacy and true community and true relationship for surface conversations and cynical realism. And it's often a very small step from that space, that place of lost hope and dreams, to a place of even more confusing, more challenging, the place where we begin to lose our faith. See, note these disciples. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He told them he would die and rise again. That but it didn't. In the pain of their slaughter, about us, problems of loss and you remember when Jesus was so real to us that we had no question of his presence in our lives? He was our most intimate friend, our counselor, our guide. He gave us comfort, courage, and confidence. But then that certainty shifts and becomes cloudy with all the weight of all of our disappointments, our hurts, our losses. We get into this dark time where we no longer think of him that much, no longer desire to spend hours talking with him or studying about him, or worshiping him. It's easier to stay home and work on our possessions than it is to gather and worship this God. It's easier to get a few extra hours of sleep on a Sunday morning than be together. It's easier to watch Netflix than it is to pick up his story and read about how amazing he is. Thoughts of him no longer make our heart pause with wonder. And then one day, we even begin to question if he is anything more than just another fairy tale. And that's when we come to the slow realization that somehow we have lost him too. And suddenly, we're very much like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We walk with our heads cast down, our hearts too heavy to hope, our souls overwhelmed with suffering, often silent. But here's the thing, as hard as this statement may sound, stay with me. Suffering by itself is not the real issue. The real issue is, what are we going to do with our suffering? How are we going to respond to our loss? We have two choices, I think. Resentment or thanksgiving. Resentment is easy. That's the easy choice. I know because at times I have been very familiar with resentment. I have had seasons where loss after loss and hurt after hurt <laughs> has made it very easy to become disillusioned, angry, bitter, and increasingly resentful. There have been times in my life when resentment seems to have taken up permanent resonance in my being. Times when holding on to painful memories of loss and hurt become the norm. 
and resentment hid in every corner of my being. But here's the thing, resentment is one of those destructive forces. Oh, did I not put the next slide up? Sorry. <laughs> you guys are probably wondering. Resentment's a very destructive force. It's like a ball and chain wrapped around our being. It paralyzes us, and it leaves us living with hearts of stone filled with anger and bitterness. And so the hurt that we suffered and the loss that we suffered and the pain that we suffered that was bad enough now becomes multiplied. The prison we were put in now becomes a permanent prison because of our own anger and our own resentment and our own hatred and our own bitterness. However, the Eucharist offers us another choice. And this is why we do communion here every week. Multiple reasons why this is the big one. Eucharist is the possibility to choose thanksgiving instead of resentment in the face of loss. Eucharist means literally the act of thanksgiving. That's what it means, the act of thanksgiving. Don't you love that picture? It's one of my favorites. I know it's one of yours. I love that. So here's the question, why and how are we to be thankful in the midst of loss and suffering? Why? Well, I think the first step may be in the sorrow itself. Sincere mourning of our losses is the beginning of learning to live thankfully. This is why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. One of the problems with Western society in general, and more importantly Western Christianity, has been to push people through mourning. Don't tell me about it. Just tell me you're happy already. Tell me you're already living victorious. I'm sorry. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. There must be something then about that. And pushing us through our mourning is not helping anyone. And for all the times I sat in big churches and watched parade after parade of people telling how their testimony about how victorious their life was, it just crashed and burned sometimes days after the testimony, but certainly within months or years after the testimony. We have to mourn our losses. We live with them. It's real. Jesus wept. And I think he said, blessed are those who mourn, for you should be comforted, because when we mourn honestly, we come face to face with the pure fragility of life itself. And I, I, had, I just asked Sarah in a text, can you do this? She said, sure, I had no idea what she was going to say. And she said exactly this. The very beauty of life and preciousness of life cannot be separated from its fragility and mortality. Henry Noun writes this, pick a flower, watch a butterfly, hold a baby. Loss and life are both there and all the fragility and all the wonder. In order to have the possibility of this life, you have the possibility of this loss. You know, I often say to loved ones and friends, hey, listen, this can all end tomorrow. And they always get mad at me. Why are you so dark? Why are you so bitter? I'm not dark and I'm not bitter. My recognition of the fact that tomorrow I might not be here helps me live today the way I should be living. 
Because when I am furious at my 18-year-old son, I don't want the last thing he hears out of my mouth to be anger. Because it might be the last thing he hears out of my mouth. Because that's the fragility of this life we live in. We spend our time wasting our opportunities to be together, to love properly because of our hate and our resentment and our bitterness and our anger. And much of it is well-placed. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone for that. It is often well-placed anger and resentment and bitterness. That's the world we live in. Is that how we want to spend what could be our last few hours? Not doing what we could be doing? Linda knows. Bob kissed her goodbye like he did every week of their life. And how many years ago is that now, Linda? Wow. Sarah being purposeful about her time with her mom. But here's the thing. We don't have to wait for a doctor to give us the news. I'm giving it to you right now. You're all dying. And it might be this afternoon. Deep, sorrowful, sincere mourning will help us understand this. Because when we allow ourselves to mourn, we can't help it. But realize, oh my gosh, life is short and life is hard and life is... And this awareness can lead us to an even deeper place. A place where we're able to pray the most powerful prayer ever prayed. The very simple, Lord have mercy. I don't think there's a more important prayer that we can pray. This is the cry of God's people. Read the scriptures. The constant dirge echoing throughout every page, is Lord, have mercy. But this cry and this song, and to join in the voices of the centuries, is only possible, and what I'm about to say is hard, but I just sit with it. If on your journey of faith you're not here yet, that's fine. That's fine, just sit with this. To join this song is only possible when we confess that at some profound level, we ourselves have something to do with our own losses. Because crying for mercy is finally an acknowledgement that blaming others or blaming God is not a valid response. Crying for mercy is a cry that says to God, I am part of the human brokenness that causes so much loss. Please have mercy. And this is the mystery of our gospel. This is the mystery and the haunting beauty of communion and why we celebrate communion at Cana every week. Because this allows us to go to this place of being thankful in the midst of loss. See, we can and should come to this table just as we are right now. 
and any restrictions put on this table by yourself or by others is one of the grossest blasphemies that can happen within Christianity. Because it is this table where we come and we can claim responsibility for the conflicts that rage in our hearts, that rage in our relationships, that rage in our communities, that rage in our regions, and even in the world. And when we finally claim that responsibility for even pain that we have nothing to do with, we can truly begin to move beyond our own hurts and beyond our own losses. This is the mystery of the gospel. There is this beautiful, beautiful scene in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which is really hard studying this, being part of opening ourselves and being vulnerable to this mystery in which the youngest brother just starts walking through the world and asking everything and everyone to forgive him. The birds, the sticks on the floor, the animals, the sun, the clouds, everyone he meets, just forgive me, please. And he comes to the table. Because this is exactly where Christ meets us. As he did the disciples so long ago. And he offers us his bread and his wine. He offers us his body, his blood. And he gives us back our dreams and our hopes. And he gives us back our faith. If we are willing to see it and if we're willing to receive it. We can come to the table with deep hurt, real doubts, keen awareness of our own limitations and our own responsibilities and brokenness. We can come here completely lost and Christ will not turn us away. He will meet us right at this table. And he will welcome us. And he'll help us find comfort even in the very midst of our mourning. That's why I do communion every week. I need it. I don't live like none of us live this glorious life Monday through Saturday where every waking minute I'm victorious. I spend Monday through Saturday like the rest of us trying to feed the good wolf. And trying to live out this faith. And I get beat up and I get hurt like all of us. And I come here and I say, I'm lost. And Jesus says, good, I'm not. And this moment can help us find true comfort even in the very midst of our mourning. Because at this moment when we're honest and we come here honestly, here's what we're doing. We will realize in the very act of giving thanks, what it is we're giving thanks for. Mercy, grace, love, God. So when Christ through St. Paul said to give thanks in all circumstances, he was not giving an empty command and something we cannot relate to. Though I'm sorry it's often been taken out of context and bothered. But what Paul was doing was giving us an invitation to life as we were meant to live it, thankfully. Thankfully. It is a mystery, but it is real. 
it is as mysterious as God dying for us and as real as the bread and wine we celebrate. Amen. The band's going to come and play a song that I've asked them to play. And while they do that, I'm going to set communion here. Jennifer and I will be here to serve it to you. Come and take communion. And this is sort of going to be the year of the Eucharist here at Cana. Start today, please, trying to open yourself up to what this is. Be responsible, knowing that you will be welcomed in that responsibility. Come feeling whatever you need to feel. It's the other side of the table that we start telling our testimony, not this side, if that makes sense.